one week in London, in September 1665, no fewer than 47 different causes of death were reported, including consumption, fever, dropsy, being frighted, a fall, grief, worms, vomiting, and plague. We know this information thanks to a record called a Bill of Mortality, a broadsheet that was printed to list the number of burials in and around the City of London by district and the causes of those deaths. Having ourselves experienced COVID, we've had our fair share of statistics about infection and mortality used to chart the spread of the pandemic. They determined government policy. They also spread fear and sometimes hope. Was the same true of the bills of mortality collected some 400 years ago? Who made them? How? Why? And who read them? What can we make of the strange causes of death they record? And what do they tell us about life and death in early modern London? I'm delighted to say that today's guest is Professor Vanessa Harding, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society who has spent a lifetime studying early modern London. She has a particular interest in housing and the built environment and is trustee and honorary secretary of the Historic Towns Trust. She has directed or co-directed three major research projects on early modern London and has also written a huge number of articles, chapters and books, including The Dead and the Living in Paris and London, 1500 to 16. 1670. You're in for a treat. Professor Harding is a wonderful scholar. There is little she does not know about early modern London, and I am delighted to welcome her today to share her knowledge about the bills of mortality. Professor Vanessa Harding, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. It's an absolute delight to talk with you again and to think about this most interesting of sources and what it has to tell us. Thanks very much, Susanna. I suppose given that we can't see them right now, or the listeners can't see them right now, it might be worth starting with what a 17th century bill of mortality looked like as a physical document and what sort of information it conveyed. Well, the bills of mortality, the way we normally talk about them, are, as you say, 17th century documents they're handbills, which means they're single sheets printed on both sides. They're a bit smaller than A4. And on the top side, the front side, there is the date. There is a list of the London parishes. And there is a list of, against each parish, how many people died in that week and how many people died of plague in that week. And then on the reverse side, there's a list that aggregates together the causes of death. So how many people died in childbirth? How many people died aged? How many people died of the spotted fever? And we'll come back to how the information for them was collated in a moment. But what was their intended purpose? And I suppose, did they take on different purposes for different groups of people? I'm sure that's the case, yes. I mean, originally, the collection of information is for official purposes, but the printed ones that we know are clearly being circulated to the public. So in a sense, it's the recognition that there's a demand for information out there and an attempt to meet it in what proves to be a very popular and interesting and widely circulated way. And they're collated by London's company of parish clerks, aren't they, which is a guild. Why them? Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely right. Well, the parish clerk for each parish is the person who records baptisms, marriages and burials. So he's, as it were, the literate officer of the parish, particularly at a time when 
not all parishioners by any means are literate. So he's used to collecting this kind of information. And he's then, an extra duty is imposed upon him to collect and return this information to the company of parish clerks. And they're the people in what must be a very busy day. They collate the weekly information from each of the hundred odd parishes into this single sheet, have it printed and then start selling it the next day. And how frequently were they published in the 17th century? There are weekly bills, so they come out every week on a Thursday or Friday. That does change a bit over time. There are also yearly bills, which aggregate the totals for each parish in the same sort of way. But I think the ones that really have the grip on the popular imagination are the weekly ones, because it's like having a news sheet of what's going on. And it's really interesting and useful information If you're living in a city where plague may arrive at almost any time and where you really want to know where it is and how many people are dying. So they're like a weather vane in some ways for people. They can see which way the wind is blowing. Absolutely. I mean, almost literally, because people reading the bills must have a sense of the geography of London so they can see whether it's in a parish near to them or one of the parishes on the outer edges of the city, the metropolis. So they helps to formulate, I think, in their minds, a spatial picture of death and particularly of plague. That's so interesting. And I suppose it raises questions about what that information does and whether it produces mostly fear or whether it gives them options to do other things. But perhaps that's moving beyond the scope of our immediate inquiry. Let's have a think about then how the information came to be gathered, because you've mentioned the parish clerks and that makes absolute sense. But is there a kind of process of notification and recording that goes on? How does the family let the clerk know, etc.? This is the bit that we don't have documented, but we've got lots of people saying this is how it should be or this is how it should work. So in 16th and 17th century London, every parish is meant to employ one or two people known as searchers who are meant to inspect the bodies of all the dead and report their names and what they died of to the parish clerk. And this is partly to identify whether people have died of plague, but it also then becomes this much bigger information gathering exercise. Now, I suppose what we don't know is whether the family says, please, could you come and inspect this dead body? Or whether it's local rumour that says somebody's died in such and such a house, one of the searchers should go around and have a look and report back. Or whether it's perhaps when the family contacts the sexton about having the individual buried, that they say, well, actually, we need to have this information too. And tell me about the searchers. What sort of people were they? Almost always they are elderly women who are, of course, the same kind of people who do a lot of nursing and nurse keeping, who are used to attending on the sick, who are not afraid to go into sick rooms and to inspect dead bodies. It's also old women who lay out the dead before burial usually. So there will be usually two older women from the parish. They may be people who are depending on the parish for some of their income or for some kind of pension. So it's kind of quid pro quo. You know, we need somebody to inspect the dead. We'll give you a pension and a payment if you do so. So it's that relationship of dependence. And there's some question of, I mean, people at the time questioned, people since have questioned, are they really the best people to inform, to understand what's going on? And I think the answer is, yes, this is as good as it gets. These are the people who, as I say, nurse sick people. They are perfectly capable of saying, this is an infant. This person has died of old age because there's no other disease. And for all the complaints in the middle, 
their diagnosis is as likely to be accurate as anything. So if somebody dies of a high fever, that's how they'll record it. If they've died of an identifiable disease like smallpox, they'll be able to pick that out. Some of the terms that they use for causes of death are unfamiliar to us, like griping in the gut. But, you know, you can tell what that means, that somebody has had some severe internal disorder. I think the searchers are really pretty good as recorders of what was going on. It's also interesting that they are women because this is an age that is highly patriarchal, possibly becoming more so, and in which we've seen the medicalization of healthcare and the sort of domination of men in that. So it seems unusual to me that women are still performing this role. Is it perhaps because it's a dangerous one, because it means coming in contact with plague victims? That may come into it. But also, I think, as it were, what you might call the people-facing side of medicine is still very much in the hands of women. Women do the nursing, women do quite a bit of practicing, you might say. I mean, they're not supposed to, they're not supposed to offer cures or medicines or to prescribe, but they actually do an awful lot of the hands-on care. So I think it's partly that they're the easiest group to tap in that sort of way. They have expertise and they are available. And that in a city the size of London, nobody could afford the kind of fees that licensed medical practitioners might charge for this. So it's a combination of practicalities and affordability and possibly also, I think, a recognition that, well, they do it as well as anybody might. Did the bills of mortality record deaths or burials? And if it's the latter, does that mean that we're seeing statistics of those who died in the Church of England only? Yes, the identification is often a bit blurred. They are supposed to be recording burials because that's how the information comes to them. You know, it's to do with who's going to be buried in the Church of England. For the 16th and 17th century, that isn't too much of a problem. But once nonconformity really takes root in later 17th century London, then there is an increasing number of people who are being buried outside the Church of England. And that by the 18th century, everybody who tries to use the bills of mortality for statistics or for serious understanding says, well, you know, not all the deaths are recorded here. Is there any way we can change it? And I think the thing is, by then, it's so stuck in its track that it's impossible to revise it. But the problem, particularly a problem for baptisms, because the bills of mortality will only record Anglican baptisms, they're likely to get a higher proportion of burials because people do have to be buried somewhere. And that even some nonconformists will have to accept that they need to be buried in the Church of England because that's one of the very few places you can be buried. So that's quite interesting in terms of what it's going to tell us about mortality rates, I suppose. Yes, yes, you've always got to bear that in mind that, you know, it can't be 100% coverage and there may be areas where the coverage is significantly weaker than others. You mentioned what griping in the guts might mean, but there's some others on there that might surprise people, rising of the lights or chrysobes or teeth. Could you tell us about some of these ones that seem a bit more unusual to us? Well, a lot of them, of course, are to do with what manifests itself. So griping in the guts, you know, that's obvious. Abdominal pain, I would have said. Teeth is a very common one. And what we think that means is that it's not so much what a child dies of, it's the stage of its life that it dies. So they use the categories abortives and stillborns. Chrism is one you mentioned, and that's a child who dies before they've been christened or within the first month of life. 
So it doesn't tell you what they die of, but it does perhaps tell you that they don't think you need a cause of death for a very small baby, that their likelihood of dying is high anyway. And teeth simply means an infant has died while they were growing their teeth, while their first teeth were being cut. So it puts it in the sort of, I don't know, one to two year old range. That's fascinating. I had assumed people were dying of abscesses. And I love the fact that actually that tells us so much information about infant mortality and the stage at which it happens. You get an insight there, you don't really get anywhere else in statistical terms. Absolutely. The bills of mortality don't give you age at death as such. But if you add together all the things that only children die of, then you can say that actually a really high proportion of Londoners are dying within the first five years of life. And that this is actually one of the first conclusions to be drawn from an analysis of the bills of mortality in the 1660s by John Grant, the statistician, who basically says that a third of London-born children die before they're 10. It's a striking and horrifying figure, isn't it? Yes. So thinking about them as evidence of plague epidemics, and of course the Great Plague of 1665 in London, how were these intended to be used? Are they, as you've described them, a kind of warning to Londoners? Or is it intended that this information is shared with the central government before it's published? Is it a way of allowing the government to manage potential epidemics? It's probably a mixture of all of those. I mean, the origins of the collection of the data are definitely to do with knowing about plague, with understanding who's dying and where. And so we don't have many reports from the 16th century, but we know that the parish clerks were reporting weekly figures to the mayor and aldermen and subsequently to central government. So it's definitely an information gathering exercise from the point of view of government. And I think that they're interested in a number of different ways. Perhaps the most important is whether it gives an early warning of when plague measures may need to be imposed. Because plague is very seasonal, it tends to start in about May and epidemics reach their height in about September and they die away by late November or December. I mean, that doesn't mean that there aren't plague deaths at other times of year, but the classic serious epidemic has that seasonality. So if you're looking at the weekly bills back in, say, in May, you know, in one week there are five plague deaths and the next week there are three and then the next week there are four, you're thinking that's fine. But if there are five and then 10 and then 20, then that looks as though that's the early warning sign that this is going to be an epidemic. And during epidemic years, like the Great Plague, I suppose a typical bill, because it's arranged by parish, gives us a sense of how the epidemic is spread across the local environment. But for a resident of London, they would have seen and had manifest to them in various ways that the plague was present. So I, I'm just sort of wondering whether these broadsheets are offering more evidence when the plague is quite so plain to see. I think they're giving you a view of what's going on in London as a whole. I mean, even somebody who wanders around London like Pepys, for example, actually only goes down a limited number of streets. You know, he sees houses shut up in Drury Lane, for example. But to get a sense of what's going on more generally, I think the bills really are the way in which people do this. You know, I mean, by 1665, London has a population of 400,000, something like that. So nobody's really in touch with what's going on everywhere. But it gives all Londoners or all Londoners who can read or who listen to other people telling them, it gives them a sense of what's going on in the bigger picture. 
And it's actually quite interesting is that, I mean, this thing of tracking it from parish to parish, I mean, Pepys does say from time to time that it's in this parish or that parish. And I think when he actually writes, the plague is in our parish, I think he may be getting that information from the weekly bill. Ah, that's very interesting. So it feels like it's part of a sort of change in terms of how people learn, how information is spread at this time as well. In your research, you describe a variety of bills of mortality from plague years and each have slightly different designs. I wonder if you could talk me through this. Well, I think it comes down to the fact that this is a very valuable genre. It's it's a useful commercial property to be the printer of the bills of mortality. And the demand for information is such that lots of private printers, apart from the parish clerk's printer, who's the one who brings out the weekly bills, recognise that they could make a sale. So in a plague year, an enterprising printer will put together his own bills, not of the very current information, but for example, the four great years of plague or plagues in other places, and will combine those sometimes with a woodcut picture, sometimes with prayers, sometimes with plague remedies or how to avoid the plague, so as to produce, it's not even a commemorative sheet because these are brought out during the plague itself, but it gives you a sense of what's going on and what you might do about it. So you get a bit of chronological dimension to the plague you're in, and you can also see it in terms of other years. So a huge range of jobbing printers are producing these and selling them. I mean, some of the most interesting ones are the ones that they bring out in, say, August or September. They give you all the weekly totals up to that moment, and then they leave a blank so that if you want to, you can go on adding them to increase your understanding of the scale and the contours of the epidemic. Yes, and some bills survive with those annotated figures, don't they? You've written about Richard Smith. Tell me a bit about him and what we can know of him and his relationship with these bills of mortality. Well, Richard Smith, which is not a good name if you're researching somebody because (laughs) there's an awful lot of Richard Smiths. He's a city law officer and he's a keen book collector. And it turns out that he also collected bills of mortality because some of the surviving bills we have can be traced back to him because of the way some of the things that have been written on them and his handwriting and so on. So I think he was like any Londoner was simply receiving them weekly. He probably subscribed because he's got such a continuous collection, but he also seems to have felt they were worth keeping. They're not just ephemera to throw away. So he collected both weekly bills and he collected some of these decorative, composite, commemorative bills that I was talking about with pictures and things like that. I mean, like anybody living or any literate person living in London, he was using written information as a way of better understanding what was going on. Because we know he also read treatises of the plague and he collected quite a lot of printed books about plague, not just the most contemporary and current ones, but antiquarian books, maybe for their antiquarian interest, maybe because he was just interested in the history of plague. And what do his personal notations add to the information that we have? I suppose the most interesting thing I mean, whatever they say is that they show that somebody's interested in this and is engaging deeply and directly with the information they contain. There are a few things in which some of the weekly bills that he collected, he's annotated. For example, in the week of the Great Fire, he's written something in his own handwriting. One of the things that ties this collection of bills to him is that in the week in which his wife died and was buried, he annotates the weekly bill in his collection to say, my wife died this week and was buried at St Giles Cripplegate, and that absolutely ties it to him. But there is another thing which is also interesting, and we don't have much surviving of this, 
which is that he obviously started to make notes about some of the causes of death and what they might mean. Maybe there was a lot more that we've lost. The only bit we have in which he's drawn together some commentary on the bill's category of overlaid and starved at nurse, which again is one of the categories that applies to babies, basically. A baby has been rolled on in a bed for overlaid, presumably. Yes. I mean, basically, a baby has died without it being clear why it's died, I think. And he speculates whether these ought to be investigated by a coroner in case they are felonious deaths. And he investigates various authorities writing about this. I mean, he doesn't come to any conclusion. He's not a medical man. He's not a criminal lawyer. But he's clearly somebody who's noticed something in these weekly bills that he gets. And it's prompted him to think, certainly about this category of deaths. I don't know whether he thought about any others. So interesting. So he's doing the sort of analysis that historians now do with them, but he's doing it as a contemporary source. Yes. One thing that is interesting is that we know that he knew John Grant, who's the man who collected enormous amount of data from the existing bills and published his natural and political observations on the bills of mortality in 1662. We know that Richard Smith owned a copy of that. We know that he knew John Grant because he mentions his death. Grant himself is a real example of how numbers are coming to be important to people's understanding of the world they're in. It's the first really serious attempt to analyse statistics in that way, to understand all sorts of things about London, including its size, whether it's growing or diminishing, whether it's more or less healthy than the country. And there's obviously a market for this because... His book, The Natural and Political Observations, goes into five editions within a very short period of time. Grant is made a member of the Royal Society. He's recognised as an authority, as having really made an important contribution to science. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and over on the History Hit Warfare podcast, I bring you cutting-edge military histories from around the world. Why was Sitting Bull such a remarkable leader? What was Napoleon's greatest ever battle? How did the Cuban Missile Crisis almost turn the Cold War hot? And who dropped the world's largest nuclear bomb on the Arctic? Through interviews with world-leading historians, policy experts, and the veterans who served, we find the answers to these questions and so much more. So come and join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where... We're on the front lines of military history. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. We're living in a world that's so completely chock full of statistical literacy, I suppose, that it's very good to be reminded that this is a period where this is <laughs> beginning. Do you feel that this is part of the scientific revolution, I suppose? Is this about how people judge the risk and mortality and see it as something that you can 
approach through numbers and reason as opposed to perhaps a more spiritual or religious way of approaching it? Or am I creating that a false binary there? I'm not sure whether it's a false binary or not, because almost everybody who we think of as a scientist in the late 17th century was also religious one way or another. But I do think you're right. Yes, this is helping to spread a different way of looking at the world and at how you understand the world. And we tend to focus on the scientific revolution, but there's also uh, historical sciences at the same time, that the analysis of languages, less dramatically perhaps than the scientific changes, and with fewer great heroes. But I think this sense that the world is there to be understood and to be analysed in an exploratory way, rather than a, as it were, taking rules for granted way, is really important. One thing we haven't talked about is how the bills of mortality were distributed. Does that tell us anything about, I suppose, the power, the status behind being the monopoly that's producing such important information and their commercial value? We don't know quite as much as we might about how they are sold. I mean, we know they are sold. They're sold at a penny each or four shillings for an annual subscription, which is a slight saving. I'm sure that Richard Smith subscribed annually because he's got such a coherent, consistent set. So they were sold by a number of individuals in, I guess, most of the places where you would buy printed ephemera around London. But again, those are often people who are a bit below the radar. So it's very important to the parish clerks that they are the sole producers of these. I mean, you could say in that sense, it's a monopoly that's of value to them. But the actual distribution is quite widespread. I don't think anybody can really trace who are the women or men who are news sellers and distributors of this sort of information. And what sort of amount is a penny or four shillings? Who could afford it? That's a very good question. I guess you could get a meal for a penny, a modest meal. So a daily wage for a labourer at this time might be 18 pence, something like that. So hard to make these translations in terms of money, isn't it? Yes. Though actually, you're mentioning that reminds me that one of the other pieces of information the bills carry from the, I think it's the 1630s, is that they carry information about the price of bread. This is another issue that becomes quite complicated because the city tries to create, well, has an assize of bread which says that when grain, when corn costs so much a quarter, the weight of a halfpenny loaf and a penny loaf should be such and such. So that's, again, as it were, useful information that you might have. I mean, it doesn't actually tell you how much bread you'll get for a penny, but it says these are the standards. It feels to me that that might actually cause just as much fear and worry as knowing about plague numbers in a time where inflation is you know, an ever-present threat. And yet I suppose newspapers do the same for us. I mean, why am I questioning this you know, spreading of bad news? Well, I think the thing is, I mean, the price of bread or the, the weight of bread for a fixed price goes up and down according to the time of year and the cost of grain. So I think it's more or less saying this is what you should be able to expect rather than, you know, prices are going up, you need to worry. Ah, right. Okay, that makes sense. And I suppose here we see another fascinating dynamic, another period of change, which is the relationship between text and print and and people's experiences. All the more obvious to us now that we've lived through a pandemic, perhaps. But I think we need to think about this in the context of literacy as well. Do you think this dynamic is only significant for those who could read? I think in a society in which not everybody is literate, we might tend to underestimate the extent to which information can nevertheless be shared because some people can read and some people can pass it on. Again, you know, it's quite difficult to pin down who these people are. 
But in the average household, if the householder could read, it's not so likely that everybody else in his household could. But nevertheless, they have access to the information that he has. And so I think neighbours might convey information that they'd acquired through written form to people who couldn't. You know, if we're thinking about ordinary Londoners, people, artisans and labourers and so on, most of them wouldn't be able to read, but they'd still have access one way or another to this sort of information, which could be conveyed to them orally. You've done a lot of work on thinking about housing and the built environment and, and early modern London more generally. And I wonder how valuable a source these are for you in terms of investigating the nature of early modern London and what sort of things you've supplemented them with in order to give you a, a rounded picture? Well, one of the things that they can do is to allow us to map population across London. I mean, we know the names and the areas and the parishes, and we can see how many people are dying year by year in particular parishes. I mean, I haven't done this myself, but others have. You can see what death rates are per acre or per listed household, using other sources to understand how many households there are. And that gives you a picture of the contours of mortality across the metropolis, which, for example, allows us to say that the new spreading suburbs suffer much more severely from plague throughout the 17th century than the old city centre does. That may partly because the old city centre is wealthier and that people living there are able to afford to get out during a plague epidemic. But it does suggest that we shouldn't necessarily think the city centre is going to be the worst place for plague. It is the poorer suburbs which have come up in the last 50 or 100 years. That's definitely one of the things that the bills of mortality help one to think about. I mean, I've also used them to think about rates of change, rates of population change and how big London is and which bits of it are growing. And again, I mean, you have to be cautious because these aren't perfect figures, as we've said. But even so, you can get a sense of if one of the more remote parishes, like on the fringes of the metropolis, like Clerkenwell, for example, at the beginning of the period, it is recording very few deaths every year. But by the end, many, many more. And that's simply, you know, straightforward evidence without any recourse to looking at the built environment or other sources, that the population has grown. And it's so fascinating because it turns my immediate assumptions about risk and the likelihood of death in a plague situation on its head. I would have immediately said, oh, it's going to be the inner city districts that will be more dangerous. And that presumably says that I'm thinking far too much with a sort of perspective of 19th and 20th century housing back onto the 17th century. And it's so revelatory because you know, no matter how much one spends time in the early modern period, and I spend a lot of my mental, my waking hours there, but still I'm importing recent ideas and projecting them onto the past. It's very interesting if you think, well, what does suburb mean? What did it mean in the 17th century? And what does it mean to us now? I think all the changes that took place in the 19th and 20th centuries have transformed our understanding of just of the meaning of inner city and outer suburb. But what you were saying about turning your ideas on the head, it's actually interesting that in the 16th century, this marked disparity between city centre and suburbs hasn't really taken place. I mean, it looks as though death rates in the 1563 epidemic, which is one of the really big ones, London doesn't have a huge death total because London's not so big, but it definitely has a high death rate. It looks as though actually that's probably the last one in which the city centre is one of the worst places to be. And that's partly because the suburbs haven't started spreading and the great growth of London hasn't got very far. But after that, again, once you look at relative death rates, it looks as though the problem is moving to the suburbs. So it's another way in which the bills of mortality is 
a way of testifying to change, to change going on in terms of the city size, in terms of how people are thinking about data and how they're understanding print so much in this one set of documents. Yes. I mean, one interesting thing is that to begin with, it looks as though they list all the parishes alphabetically. And then by about the 1570s, the bills or the collectors of data, the parish clerks, are told by the city that they must separate them into three categories. That's to say the city within the walls, the immediate fringe outside the walls, most of which is still under the jurisdiction of the mayor and alderman, and the more distant outer suburbs, which are outside the mayor and alderman's jurisdiction. And I think this is a recognition that, I mean, perhaps a rather belated one, that space matters and that there are different things going on in the city centre and in the inner and outer suburbs. One more question about the nature of the deaths. Have scholars done analysis of the reasons for death beyond the specific ones related to infancy? And can we learn something about the nature of mortality more generally beyond plague as well? Yes, I mean, there's quite a lot of work has been done. I mean, the bills are not in themselves enough to get everything you'd like. I mean, where there are a few parish registers which give you age at death and cause of death, and only a few do that, then you can begin to think about age specificity. You know, what is it that people in their 20s die of and what is it that they die of in their 60s and 70s? You can combine that with the sort of the overall picture you get from the bills of mortality. For example, they show that accidental deaths and murders make up a very small proportion of the whole. Infectious diseases of all kinds are important, that respiratory diseases are certainly important, whether this is written down as cough or pleurisy or tisic or something like that, or consumption, assuming that that means pulmonary tuberculosis. Those are actually very important causes of death in 17th century London. And we know from other sources, the air is increasingly polluted with all the smoke, the coal smoke that's being burnt. So you can see, well, perhaps there's a connection there between the high level of respiratory disease and the high level of air pollution. But then there's also lots of people dying of gastric and intestinal disease, whatever that might be. Complaints, perhaps one should say, rather than disease. So you do get a picture of what people are dying of. And as I say, when you can tie this together with information about the age at which people are dying, you get a sense, well, a sense of a very different landscape from the one we inhabit. I mean, apart from appallingly high infant and child mortality, people died in every decade of life, which is something that we don't really expect. I mean, they're more likely to die of infectious disease in their 20s and 30s. And obviously, that's the age at which women die in childbirth. But quite a lot of people live to a good old age, live to over 70. And that at that age, they're more likely to be said that they die aged, whatever that means. But they may also die of something like dropsy, or it tends to be respiratory and bodily infirmities that people die of in old age. It's quite an achievement then to die aged. Yes, yes, yes. Not bad after the common trace, as Wyatt once put it. The last question for you then, in hindsight, the bills seem part news service and they seem part health measure for the public and part scientific journal. So why and when did they fall out of use? Well, they continue to be produced, I think, into the beginning of the 19th century, but they're increasingly compromised as a useful data source because of this thing of their only Anglican burials. But also by the late 18th century, you're getting a lot more interest in statistics and demography and in trying to count the population and that people are finding other ways of doing this. 
So, you know, as you know, the, the demographers of the late 18th century, the census, the changes to the census in the early 19th, I think the bills are really not serving a useful purpose. I mean, it may be that the parish clerks are keen not to give up this monopoly, but the fact that it's not any longer underpinned by serious interest in what they contain, I think, must be undermining it. Well, thank you so much for introducing us to this most fascinating set of sources and the extraordinary riches within them and how they send us in all sorts of directions in terms of thinking about what we can learn about 17th century London. Thank you so much. Thank you, Susanna. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Anisha Dever, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.